This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other events. Tēnā tātou katoa. No mai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa korero, or the Physics Room. No mai whakarongo mai whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the director of the Physics Room, a contemporary art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Aotearoa since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. Kia ora tato. My name is Amy Wing and I'm the curator at The Physics Room and this is episode 42 of Art Not Science. In this episode, we'll be sharing a recent lecture titled Beyond Safe White Spaces by NAM-based artist, writer and curator Andy Butler. Andy was recently the artist-in-residence at Artspace Aotearoa with the support of the Deborah Porch Award and the Australia Council for the Arts. Andy's practice focuses on the way societal structures of power shape cultural production. His writing on art and politics has been published to acclaim, including in Freeze, The Saturday Paper, The Monthly, Art and Australia, and many more. As an artist, Andy works across painting, film, performance, and installation. His work has been exhibited with galleries including the Ian Potter Museum of Art, Bus Projects, First Draft, The Substation, and Footscray Community Art Centre, and he has participated in international residencies in the Philippines and Indonesia. His work is held in collections including the University of Melbourne Art Collection. As a curator, Butler tackles questions of how predominantly white cultural institutions engage with the practices of those who have historically been underrepresented in public cultural discourse, and the slippages and contradictions we find ourselves in when those who hold power talk about societal transformation and equity. Andy was previously the curator and artistic director acting at West Space. In this lecture, Andy looks at how museums, galleries, and art histories more broadly are going through processes of cultural upheaval. Discourses of justice, representation, and equality are today pervasive within spaces that have historically been sites of concentrated colonial power and inequality. Safe White Spaces, an article published by Andy in Runway Journal in 2017, locates these changes within specific sites in Nam, Melbourne, and provides a background or cultural reference for this lecture. Drawing on a range of artworks, curatorial projects, and writings that underpin his practice, 
Andy will reflect on the slippages and contradictions we find ourselves navigating during this time of cultural and political transformation, and how we might find moments of optimism, joy, humour and solidarity through art. Now let's hear from Andy. As Abby said, my name is um, Andy Butler. I'm usually based in uh, Melbourne. Um, I'm an artist, writer and a curator, and I actually have no training in any of those things, which is kind of why... I do do all of them, but I'm really appreciative of so many people coming out because it's the really robust artistic community in Melbourne that has allowed me to grow into the artistic practitioner that I am now. It's actually through this incredible network of peers and friends and frenemies and people that, you know, you like their work, but whatever, or you really like them and, you know, you'll still celebrate their work and it's great, but it's just... It's this really fantastic energy of people coming together around art and creative expression is kind of where I come from outside of art schools and institutions and and museums and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, just really wanted to say thank you for the art community in Christchurch for coming. I don't know this many people in Christchurch, so it's great to see you all here. In this talk, I'm going to sort of go over the past five years of my my practice, which is actually kind of from the beginning of my practice. It's been a, a really strange and, yeah, really strange five years. It's kind of been a bit of a whiplash whirlwind for me, which I think is just kind of indicative of where the discourses around social transformation are at within the museum sector. I was still in bed at about a quarter to five today, sort of relaxing before, before this, and I subtitled this Changing from the Inside versus Burning It All to the Ground. And that's kind of sort of what has followed me for the past five years of having quite a profile as a practitioner, is this constant sort of oscillating between being the diversity advocate within the institution and within the structures of power, and then just piecing out and being like, no, fuck you guys, I don't need to be here for this. Like, you guys sort it out. Yeah, I guess with these sorts of lectures, it's usually quite useful to sort of give an overview of how I sort of came to become a, an artist and a writer and a curator without having gone to, to art school, because I think it is about timing and diversity discourse is kind of how I arrived here. So I studied philosophy and graduated in 2014, and I was as surprised as anyone else that I got a job after that in 2015, selling catalogues at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image for the David Bowie exhibition. So it was like a three-month contract, and I was just selling like the catalogues to people as they went through the exhibition. I was really shit at it, and so I wasn't rehired. But from then, I was able to take a job at the National Gallery of Victoria, seriously just at like front of house selling tickets, kind of like, like the people wearing shirts at the gallery here. And that was my introduction to art. And the amazing thing about it is that everyone that worked there was an artist. And it was just this beautiful, amazing community of people, a really shit institution. Oh my God, it's a terrible place. I'd never work with them again. But... <laughs> It was just a really interesting time. And also an interesting time because everybody was talking about diversity. And it's sort of that I just had that moment where I realised that I was the diversity. <laughs> that, like, that it was consistently a, a structure that has historically founded as a handmaiden of colonisation, run by and operated by predominantly white staff with a predominantly white audience, 
all talking about social transformation by including non-white people. And, and it was me. And, oh, my God, they felt really fantastic about themselves. Um, and there was a, a, a sort of... There was a small crew of us that were there as front-of-house staff, and it was actually just really horrific. And I sort of went in thinking that museums and art is this place of, like, progressivity and ideas and, and all this amazing thing, and I was so shocked at how it really was not that at all. It was so, so not that. So, yeah, I started doing that 2015, 2016. I started writing a little bit in 2016, thinking about this issue of why are these white institutions with probably white audiences talking about diversity? And what is the tension with that? Um, so I actually published my first thing in 2016. I really wanted to write about the National Gallery, but because I was working there, I couldn't. So I ended up writing about the Melbourne Writers Festival. I don't have reference to this here, but... It's called Beyond Diversity is Mere Representation. It was, yeah, it's a really wordy thing. It was before I learned to edit better. Yeah, but I guess this, you know, really common dynamic that you see played out is that I kind of said the most basic thing about what was happening in terms of discourses around race. And then the organisation was like, oh, my God, you're so right. Do you want to come work for us? And so then... I ended up getting a job at the Melbourne Writers' Festival as a person answering their phones, obviously doing a lot of cultural labour as well, really thinking about diversity. So I actually ended up rage quitting about a year and a half after I wrote this article, Safe White Spaces, which is about the National Gallery of Victoria. I finally had the space to write about the NGV because I wasn't working there anymore. And I guess what's really interesting from talking to Abby is that this was my burner all to the ground moment. This was like, I'm never fucking working in the arts again. Like, and so I actually just said the most like non-radical, non-controversial thing that you could say and just pointing out the obvious that was like, we're here in the Melbourne art scene. Everyone's talking about diversity and inclusion. Everyone's white. Like really not... Like, you know, it's actually kind of just pointing out the obvious. But I, I guess, yeah, that similar dynamic happened where it was this breakup moment, but then it just really escalated in a way that I could never have, like, anticipated to where this piece of writing still follows me around today. And it is the reason why I can be a full-time artist now, because of this, because... Every, it was through an artist-run publishing thing. Physics Room also does some artist-run publishing. That's really fantastic. But, yeah, it was seriously just meant to be like, a fuck you, I'm leaving, you guys are absolute idiots. And then all of a sudden, I was on a diversity panel a week. And, like, you know, I managed to quit my job, but, you know, I had no idea what was happening. Like, it was really strange but was also coming up amongst a cohort of other people that I just meet on diversity panels. Like, yeah, so it's just a really strange time. So that, that sort of gives context to that bit of writing. It's, it's linked in the bit about this, this talk. It's really Melbourne-specific, and, like, I actually... I reread it and it's like, fuck, that really needed an editor because it was only like the second thing that I published. But yeah, it still follows me around today. Like students, lecturers, 
in Australia will still come up and want to talk about this piece. And seriously, it is the most basic, boring thing to talk about because it is just like, oh yeah, everyone in the arts is white. Whoa, radical. But to give context as to why this is radical, ah, oh, yeah. And I, and I guess like it sort of feeds into this current moment in Australia where we can all feel that we're being taken for a ride and really, really tokenized. But I guess what's interesting and, and sort of what happened through running Safe White Spaces is it's actually really embedded within a much broader global discussion that was all happening in 2017, that people were really starting to think about institutional whiteness, sort of, sort of how, like, how it was weird that all of a sudden all these brown artists were getting shows, like sort of could feel that something was in the water and there was some really great criticality around it that I feel really proud to have been like a tiny part of in Australia. But there's this really great, great quote here that's kind of wordy and is usually attached to another lecture that I give on this bit of writing. We are talking about how, you know, if someone looked at contemporary art now and compared it to what was contemporary art in the early 20th century, it would be unrecognisable in terms of the people that can participate. There has actually, there has been real shifts, but the consistent thing that we find within these institutions, and obviously art is bigger than these institutions, but it just controls it way too much, the closer and closer and closer you get to the centre of power, the more that it ends up being like this. You consistently find that, and so I guess like the sort of past five years of what I've been doing has really been trying to come to terms with the contradictions of this. And I guess I'll speak to the reasons why I don't work in the arts anymore once I get to the part about, about the artworks that I make and, and sort of why I turn to art making. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. To give you context, like, you know, there is this narrative that, like, you know, Aotearoa is bad, but Australia is worse. And I think that, that there is probably some truth to that. But to sort of give you, give you some context about just how bad it is in Australia, um, a really incredible organisation called Diversity Arts Australia did a huge research into the amount of cultural diversity at leadership levels in arts organisations around the country. And they found that 91% of people in decision-making positions are of Anglo-Celtic heritage. So that's not even like Western European, French, German. It's actually just from people that can trace their lineage back to the United Kingdom. It is such a bizarro world that has been created through our cultural sector. And so I guess that was the real tension that, that you could feel. And... You know, even though I really do sort of use museums now as this sort of place to really investigate this tension, it's actually sort of a microcosm of the broader structures of power that we live in, especially in Australia, because those same sorts of figures and, and, and sort of levels of representation re, sort of are replicated across politics, business and academia. And to give you a sense of actually just how skewed that is in Australia that Asian-Australian population, I've read a couple of them, but the lowest one that I've read is 17.5%. That, that's a higher per capita ratio than black Americans. 
And our closest geographic neighbor is Indonesia. And so you just have to imagine the amount of cognitive dissonance and work that goes into these institutions to maintain that image across culture, politics, economics, and business. It is just a real sense of cognitive dissonance. But yeah, it was actually a real moment in 2017 when this came out. Like, I don't want to sort of, yeah, there was lots of people doing things, but for some reason I was thrown into the spotlight for a lot of reasons, because, you know, Asian Australians are the most palatable, like I can sort of talk like this and be, be in a particular way. I was sort of shot into the spotlight for this, even though lots of other people were doing stuff. But it was interesting to then follow the development of exhibitions across mainstream spaces the two years following. And all of a sudden, after like actually going through this really dark period of the sort of art that's just a shit on the floor um, in Melbourne... All of a sudden, it was, it was all brown artists, all brown, everywhere. It was just like every institution was really like throwing everything at it, but in a way that really played into this reductive sort of discourse about representation and national identity. And I guess I'm going to try and talk to the reasons why I think that, you know, this idea of representation in these spaces is just, an, just dumb. Like, why would you even want to be a part of it? But it was interesting to see the shift in all of these major institutions that they had, yeah, five exhibitions between the late, late 2018 and end of 2019 at major institutions, all focused on national identity and representation, because that was the way that people could understand how to work with brown artists, where it's like, oh, my God, who are we as a nation? Oh, these people are Australian too. Oh my God, that's so amazing. And that, that was actually, yeah, this vibe. And, and it's kind of like that moment where you realise that you've opened this Pandora's box and it's actually worse than it was before. <laughs> because now you're expected to perform even more and like only exist on this tiny, tiny, tiny box about identity, personal biography and nationhood. And that is kind of the extent of the discursive landscape within Australia still at the moment, um, which is why I do a lot of these residencies to just try and... So I do a lot of curatorial projects still too, to just try and build international artist-to-artist networks so we actually don't have to deal with these places anymore because they're idiots. But about... I'm going to talk about a couple of curatorial projects now that sort of really speak to the way that I was trying to unpack these within the Melbourne arts community. And it was... Really fantastic to... It's that thing where I started curating because it's just a way to make friends and hang out with people and build a community. And I guess this was a real way to do that. So the first exhibition I curated was called Always There and All Apart. It actually opened just a few, a couple of weeks before Safe White Spaces came out. So it was a really busy end of year for me. But I actually just approached all of these artists that are usually the diversity artists and asked them what it felt like to make that sort of work for predominantly white audiences and then put that in this, this exhibition. And it was actually, yeah, really a really interesting way to just, because people kind of weren't talking about it that much, to just sort of have these like quiet discussions in the studio where it's like, am I just imagining that this is happening 
or like, is this actually a thing? So it's this really great way of sort of building solidarity and building connections. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say, so this one is Texter Queen. I can't believe they agreed to work with me. They're such an established artist. They did this really fantastic performance called Congratulations. And so they were selling good white person allyship certificates at the opening in a, for minimum $10 donation just to really make clear the sort of emotional burden and exchange that goes on when you're making this sort of work. And there was this really great work by Carolyn Garcia that actually ended up being in one of the national identity shows um, at the MCA, curated by a white woman. Right, yeah, it's this kind of video work from 2014 called Primitive Nostalgia, where so Carolyn's um, a dancer and she green screened herself into all of these dance numbers from Hollywood films about the exotic other directed by white people. Yeah, and I, and I guess, yeah, this beautiful thing about just like reaching out and talking to people about it, it was like people had kind of had this idea of performativity in the back of their mind for ages. They all felt it. And so actually just being able to bring people together in a room and actually just make it really clear what it was, was actually really empowering. So Texter also did this. So they're really well known in Australia. They've got a major survey at the moment at 4A. But yeah, did this work called Circus of the Oppressed about diversity without adversity and sort of that sort of stuff. Um, I won't talk about that work right now. I had Priya Srinivasan and Hari Sivanesan perform sort of bringing this type of art practice that's consistently categorised in a racialized way into community art and sort of thinking about what it would be to bring it into a space like Blindside that is like the, like, one of the, like, hip contemporary art spaces. But I guess what's really interesting is that Priya, who is a classical Indian dancer, was, like, a dance theorist associate professor at UC Riverside. And so people, like, but people would still consistently, like, box her in into this, like, community art, even though she had been really deeply embedded in, like, contemporary dance theory for, like, 20 years. And so it was just really interesting to bring her in and sort of really think about, kind of just do a performance where I think people didn't quite know what to do because that's not the sort of thing that you would have at a gallery, so that was the audience there, so it was kind of mostly as expected. And I guess sort of following that, it was really interesting. I, I put her in an exhibition in 2019 that was at sort of at the same time as a lot of these identity exhibitions were coming up. And it was, it's sort of been really interesting to reflect on how this one sat alongside that because it does sort of think about those ideas, but I think personally, you know, in a way that is a little bit more, more honest. So... Yeah, it was really interesting. So for this exhibition I did called Those Monuments Don't Know Us, I had the opportunity to be able to curate an exhibition in a colonial British mansion built in 1900 that had been turned into a contemporary art space based off the previous exhibition that I'd done. And I guess, yeah, it was an interesting time in Australian politics. They were talking about, in terms of migration, bringing back an English, English language test to sort of determine whether people were allowed to come into the country, which... The sort of conservative side of government, every time it's a conservative government, they just bring this up, like, again and again, about, like, 
English competence, migration, it's seriously, they do it all the time. But interestingly, it comes back to the white Australia policy. That's actually like, you know, the founding document of Australia is the white Australia policy and it was enforced through language tests that could be performed in any language. So, and they could pick a random language for you to have to be able to speak. And if you couldn't speak it, then you couldn't come in. And so they could really use it to actually specifically have British people there. It's you're obviously such a fucked history. A, the, a legacy that still fucking lives on today. And so I guess I worked with all these artists, like a similar sort of crew of artists all based in Melbourne, just thinking about like, how is it that we still navigate this legacy? Sort of in a building that you can't kind of hide that history because I sort of felt like in a lot of these sort of other identity-based shows, it was sort of within these white cube spaces and then really focused on this idea of like challenging the white Australian identity and celebrating a multicultural identity. And that was really the discourse, but I just felt like that was really quite dishonest that this idea that we've somehow solved racism is actually just like, a lie. So yeah, so I ended up sort of working on this exhibition within this building. And I think, um, so there's a really incredible work by one of Australia's best artists, Kadeem Ali. Oh my God, he should be our next Venice person. He's really incredible. Who arrived in Australia as a Hazara refugee uh, because he was already a really well-known artist in, in Lahore, in Pakistan, where he was where he was practicing. And obviously he was allowed in during a really intense and hardcore refugee policy. So he makes these works called Fragmented Memories that really think about that deep, deep cognitive dissonance of having come from a war zone in which our country is implicated in. And because he's a well-known artist, they then brought him in because he's one of the the, the good ones. Um, anyway, he's so fucking incredible. Do follow his work. But yeah, I guess sort of in actually really trying to have deep conversations with artists about this, you know, how do we navigate these legacies? How do we inhabit them? How do we carry them ourselves? I think a really interesting discourse that I think is very specific, geopolitically specific to Australia and Aotearoa started to make itself clear. And it's just this particular work that I'm really excited about because of how complicated it is. A lot of artists, because we have a lot of Southeast Asian diaspora from the 70s, 80s and 90s who arrived either by humanitarian visa, via marriage, all these different forms of migration who sort of arrived through the dynamics of colonialism only to find themselves in a live, ongoing colonial project in Australia that they were, like, demanded to be complicit in in order to be able to assimilate. And so it's that sort of tension that is this really generative space that a lot of this incredible work is being made in Australia. And I sort of feel like a really similar push here, which is really exciting. And so, yeah, really hoping to sort of draw some some sort of discussion. So this is a work by Fung No. He's one of like, I don't know, we have a big enough and diverse enough diaspora to actually have a crew of Vietnamese artists that are really like going at the moment and they are huge. 
because all of their, you know, they're sort of in their 30s and 40s and all their parents arrived and they're the, the first generation. But this work is by Fung No called Colony. So he sort of hangs these images that he collects from the Vietnam-American War era and he's covered them all in French Indochina stamps, obviously speaking to the French colonization of Indochina and Vietnam, but then also really thinking about the deep Chinese influence on Vietnam through this sort of red thread that's hanging down. And it's really significant the way that he's sort of covered the eyes because he really thinks about the way that this sort of colonial gaze has been internalized, which for a lot of South Vietnamese who are quite conservative, who vote for Trump, who are the people that fled Vietnam, that's kind of the family that he, yeah, that he comes from. So it's really this complex position. And so there's actually quite a few artists within this exhibition that are really trying to agitate this idea of a clean relationship to your cultural heritage, which is what all of these museums want. They just want this like really simple narrative about the way that you have a connection to your non-white ancestry. And isn't that great that we're diverse? So, uh, yeah, I'm really... So this sort of really complex work is, is happening a lot in Australia and I really sort of hope to find more people over here that are doing similar work. Um, this is another Vietnamese artist, um, James Nguyen. Um, Fung and James are like massive at the moment and it's that similar sort of dynamic where he worked with his mum and auntie to recreate a really famous children's story, The Magic Pudding. I don't know if it ever crossed the ditch and made it here but it's like really famous. It kind of is a metaphor for colonization written by a really famous racist. And then he sort of, yeah, recreated it with his parents on its, on its 100th anniversary for this exhibition. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. I really wanted to bring it back to Texter Queen, who you saw in that earlier performance, who is actually quite an established Asian Australian artist. And these ideas that they deploy in their work that have really informed how I do things today. And it's this idea of complicated states of empowerment that we are put in as Asian Australians, that we are sort of asked to assimilate, to be brought into this narrative of the model migrant while being on stolen people's land, while, while being complicit within an ongoing colonial project, even though our families arrived in that same way. And so it's really thinking about the cost of what it means to be empowered and uplifted in these sorts of places. And I think that we're really lucky in Australia to have about two to three decades worth of real criticality around that question, mainly because just Australia is a really racist place. Yeah, it was interesting. So this sort of goes back to what happened after I wrote Safe White Spaces. I actually just ended up doing this a lot, which was talking and talking and talking over and over again about how we somehow fix institutions. And everybody wanted like this really clear answer and this really clear cut answer to somehow, some way solving the issue of structural racism within the history of museums and arts and culture. 
And yeah, I did it for a really long time. And, and, and I think I was sort of, yeah, was doing that for quite a number of years and then went really deep into the belly of the institution by then becoming the curator and then the director of an organization like Westbase, uh, called Westbase, similar to here, similar to Artspace Aotearoa in terms of its size and scale, in terms of how many people know it nationally and internationally, but obviously not much money. And, and it sort of runs off like an oily rag and comes from a sort of artist-run ethos, but has been going for 30 years, so it's kind of turned into this other thing. And I guess this idea of going around being this person who somehow gives people answers on how to solve the issue of institutional racism in museums just kind of amplified, especially as I stepped into the director role in a really sort of public-facing role. All of a sudden, I was everyone's diversity consultant. And it was just... It was actually a really hard time. And fuck, I'm so glad I quit. Even though I loved West Space and I really like, you know, if there are people that work in those sorts of roles here, like I fucking applaud you. Like that is amazing that you can do that. Because fuck me, I can't, like I just can't. It was so, yeah, it was really intense. And I sort of didn't know how to resolve it because... Everyone wanted these clear answers. There was a lot of emotional sort of burden because I was the first brand director of this place. All of these big artists came to us wanting to show because they didn't want to make work about like identity in this way. And we're like, oh, cool. We know where to go. We'll go to you, Andy, because no one else is going to do it. Or there's very few places with funding that can do it. And actually, that was kind of just too much. And then also navigating the sector, being the person that was consistently the only culturally diverse person in the room, in a room full of directors, talking about structural change. I was like, I actually just don't need to be here. You guys can sort that out. But I guess sort of after this sort of crisis of, well, what do I do in terms of working in the arts? Yeah, I sort of really came to art making that had been sort of bubbling away through these relationships that I built and sort of come into different, sort of been curated into different like artist-run group shows to do experiments. And I just found that the reality is, is that these spaces are never, ever going to change. And that's actually a really empowering position to take because then you know where to put your emotional energy. And there's actually no clear answer to like how we're going to fix it. And so art making is this incredible vehicle for it because you don't need to have like a clear resolution like when you're writing or when someone asks you how to solve racism, you just kind of like bring together these like conceptual, emotional and material tensions in the one work and then just kind of let people sit with it. And I think that's actually much truer to how we're going to somehow build momentum to think differently about this is actually by just like saying to these people that like we don't want to be represented in these spaces that we need to like work with with other people that we need to put our energy where there is actually a desire for change which obviously still needs to be paid for which is another like cognitive dissonance thing because it's these spaces that have all of the money to do things. And so I guess I landed on this idea of acting like a parasite, 
So I like I was really lucky enough to sort of build a profile very quickly, gain all of these skills, writing grants from being the director of a space, um, because people knew who I was from being this um, a director of a space with such a high profile. I could reach out to anyone in Australia and they would respond to me. So I guess the way that, besides independent curatorial projects that I still do, as an artist, I ended up landing on making video works that use the collection and architecture of cultural institutions as a backdrop for video works that deploy Hollywood aesthetics. And the reason why I sort of landed on that is A, because it's really fun, but also because it's really collaborative. Like you work with a sound designer, a costume designer, actors, all of these people who are just your artist mates. And like, because it's responsive to an institution, these places love it and they'll give you money. And it's easy to, it's easy to like convince a funding body to do it because it sort of makes sense within the framework of them talking about diversity because you're still doing it in these institutions. But really you're just finding a way to feed yourself, support the people around you and lift them up and like help them develop and earn money and also get all the networks so that they can fleece these places for as much as they fucking can. Um, And so I guess this is like the middle ground that I've landed in, in between this idea of like burn it down to the ground or work from the inside. Because the reality is, is that to actually start something completely new, you need to come from a real position of privilege because you need money to do it. You need to be able to pay yourself. It's not as simple as going out and starting another space. And I really fucking applaud people that can do because it takes a lot of money. And it's like, these other spaces that you want to burn to the ground are just like, they have so much power, political, cultural, economic power and resources that you need to be able to feed yourself in a capitalist society. And so I feel like with this series of works that I'm doing at the moment, it's just a much easier vehicle for sitting in that contradictory position and really sort of stewing in it and thinking about it and actually just like buying myself time with the artists around me to try and imagine something different. Because like working in these spaces, they put you to work to come up with solutions, which is actually just busy work because it's never going to change so that you never have the clarity of mind or the energy to ever imagine an alternative way of working. Yeah, the series of works that I'm working on now, and I'm really lucky to be a full-time artist at the moment, have been since February, from doing these really research-based, ongoing works, working with these major institutions, but as an artist, so that, like, I don't need to be in there dealing with the politics. I can just take their money and distribute it and then go. So I'll talk about a couple of works that I've made. So this was called, it was called Deep Clean. So this was also my COVID works that I've sort of done and sort of just come off me watching Netflix a lot. While I was under COVID, I sort of conceptualized this work to make it this place called Arts House. It was the first time I'd been given enough money to work with the crew. It wasn't heaps of money. Yes, anyone seen the movie Roma? Yeah, like beautiful movie, watched it during lockdown. I was really missing my mum in the Philippines. And Roma is about, you know, Alfonso Cuaron recalling him having a maid as a child 
so beautifully, so beautifully shot, so incredible. And I guess because I was missing my mum, it made me think about her working three cleaning jobs when I, as I was a kid and just sort of was sitting on that, that for a while and then thinking about these spaces that really talk about community engagement. And when they talk about community engagement, they actually mean people like my mum. But I guess, like, my mum would never want to go to one of these fucking places. Like, why would... Uh, uh, why? Like, I've asked her to come to an art thing once, and she's like, what would I even do there? Which is actually, like, it's true. Like, it's not, it's not a lie. Like, and so I sort of... I was like, oh, my God, the way that my mum would actually engage in a place like this is if she was the cleaner. And so then I made this work for an exhibition called Housewarming because it was celebrating the reopening of this place called Arts House that loves engaging with the local community. And they're actually amazing. I would really recommend working with them. Um, no, they actually, no, seriously, though, they're really actually incredible. So I made this work. Um, I don't have a, a clip of it, but sort of as you walked in, there was just in the stairs there, there was sort of this quite meditative video sort of, deploying the aesthetics of Roma as this actor, because my mom was in the Philippines, as this actor sort of just moved around really slowly cleaning the building. But the sound was just really intense. And so you'd walk in to the foyer and it was kind of empty. And then all you'd hear is like this vacuum, really, really, really loud vacuum. And then just sort of see this meditative sort of video work. And then next to it, through this door, was this incredible laser light show. It was so cool. Yeah. And so I just really, and I guess I, yeah, think about that sort of tension. Um, and because I really love spectacles, which kind of speaks to this other work that I've recently done. So that was the, called The Agony and the Ecstasy. Yeah, so if anyone wants to know how to be an artist, I just made that first work, then contacted curators and asked them for a studio visit. And then one of them came and gave me money to make another work. That's, that's, that's how you do it. Like, it's not, it's not magic. Yeah. This is an interesting work. I still don't know how I feel about it. There's a lot of contradictions within it. And I think that's okay, because that's what an artwork is meant to hold. I was approached by the Ian Potter Museum of Art to make a work in the original building of the University of Melbourne, which is that one. Uh, built in 1853, which is also the building that I did my honours in, in philosophy. So there was a lot of, like, trauma there, because um, this is sort of one of the most prestigious institutions in Australia. It is so fucking wild, and I felt like such a fish out of water, because I'd come from a different university during my three years than did my final year, and it was like oh my God, my supervisor's a Rhodes Scholar and has an entrance named after him at the MCG. Yeah, and I like, it's that, it's that sort of vibe. So I guess really sort of thinking about, about that. Um, and I used to do ballroom dancing as a kid. And so I really love sort of, sort of makeup, pageantry, performance, and these weird misunderstood team sports that are done in gyms in the middle and outer suburbs. So I was actually really drawn to cheerleading from having watched Bring It On and then during lockdown and then watching Cheer during lockdown at sort of time with this particular studio visit. And then I made this work. I guess one of the tensions that really sits with me with this is that it's an all-women cheerleading team. So cheerleading is actually one of the fastest growing sports in Australia. It, seriously, it's an incredible sport. 
And you'll see from the video, it is so fucking athletic. It is amazing. Because it's this really inclusive sport where everybody has a spot. Because they need people at the bottom. They need people being thrown in the air. And it's actually like a, a mixed, a strong mixed gender sport where a lot of queer men find themselves as the people throwing people in the air. <laughs> but yeah, it turned out that the University of Melbourne was the only university whose cheerleading team was single gender. So that was a real tension for me. But I guess what really fed into, I, I guess, the decision and discussion with the curator and sort of some collaborators and with the team was that it was actually much more important that it was students from the university performing in this building. Because I guess what it really turned to, and this sort of is the sort of end of the talk, thinking about hope and joy and optimism. It's sort of, yeah, sort of through going to heaps of cheerleading training sessions, it's so much fun. Yeah, just this idea of, within a younger generation, actually the sheer desire for real social transformation is actually there. I don't know if you've spent much time around people under 25 recently, but you can really feel it that, they're, that they know that it's cooked and kind of, yeah. And you know, there's so many complex positions that people hold within that, but I think that there is a desire for social change. And it was interesting with cheerleading, it sort of became this metaphor, you know, this team had been through lockdown together. They're about to graduate into like an employment and, cri and housing crisis and climate crisis and all these sorts of things. But cheerleading was this in incredible thing that held them together. So it kind of turned into this metaphor, into the sheer labor, athleticism, teamwork and sweat that it takes to maintain hope and joy and optimism when you know that everything's fucked. So yeah, that's kind of what it turned into. It's called The Agony and the Ecstasy. Um, and we'll end with that one. That was Andy Butler giving a lecture on his work as a curator and arts practitioner and how we might find moments of optimism, joy, humour and solidarity within galleries and museums and other sites of colonial power. By the time this podcast goes to air, the Physics Room's highly anticipated annual fundraiser will have opened. If you've not yet visited, please stop by or hop online to browse an amazing selection of new and limited edition works by Owen Connors, Brunel Diaz, Laura Duffy, Yukari Kaihori, Sonia Lacey, Jeremy Liatanu'u, Stephen Junil Park of 6x4, Oliver Perkins, Susu and Sam Taus. Don't miss out. The fundraiser runs until Sunday the 18th of December and is a great way to support our 2023 program. We'll reopen in the new year with an exhibition curated by our Toy Māori arts intern, Taniora Tamati Rakati. The show is titled Ha Oteokioki and opens on Friday the 27th of January 2023. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Tune in next month on Friday the 13th of January at 8pm for our next episode of Art Not Science. Matewa. The Physics Room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientech, and the Crater Rim.